Well, here we are. It's our third week. We've got three more letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we've been working our way through Psalm 119, which is an acrostic poem with 176 verses in it, um, this chapter. Uh, acrostic means that each one of the sections, there are 22 sections, one section for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each one of those letters, the eight verses or stanzas in that verse or section, um, basically starts with that letter, if we were reading it in Hebrew. Well, I mean, if you think about that, there are all kinds of issues with reading in Hebrew that are counter to what we do today. When we pick up a book today, the first page is here in what we call the front. Well, if we were reading a Hebrew Bible, the first page would be here. This would be the first page. We would call that the back. Well, it's just different. Are they right? Are we right? Who knows? And quite frankly, it doesn't matter. But it's one of those interesting, trivial things that's just kind of fun. We're going to be dealing with three letters today. The next three, we dealt with the first three, the second three last week. Today's the third three. Zayin, Het, and Tet. There are three letters today. I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get dig into this. So let's start. And we're going to start with Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember the word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. I want to remind everybody, before we get too far into this, before we start reading all the way through, that this whole this, this is the biggest um, chapter in the entire Bible. 176 verses. And it's all about God's word. And you're going to hear different terms used all the way through for that. So verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs. In the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. 
Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Father God, we are so thankful for the privilege of being able to open your word up this morning. Father, open our hearts and open our minds to a clearer understanding of you through this word. I pray, Lord, that this word will become part of who we are, that we'll live it out in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we go. We get started. I'm going to start out with verse 49. Zain is the letter, which means that all these eight lines would have started with that letter. Remember the word of your servant in which you have made me hope. In other words, here, fulfill, fulfill your promises to me upon which you have caused me to hope. We get hope from God's word. I'm not an Old Testament guy. I'm a New Testament guy. Most of us are. We live in a New Testament time. In the Old Testament, they were prophesying about the coming Messiah. He's been here. He's coming back too. Cool. But he's been here. We know and we have the promise of the Messiah. We have the promise of salvation through Christ. They didn't have that. Their salvation came through their, their zeal for this word. In keeping the law. How did they get their salvation? How were they saved? How was their relationship with God made right? Through living out the law and through doing the sacrifices in the temple. If you're a Gentile, you didn't get that. It wasn't available to you unless you converted to Judaism. And they just didn't do that. Most were pagan. They couldn't get right with God. Christ did that for us too. Us Gentiles. We got the, the, the privilege of being joined into the family of God so that we could all share in salvation through Christ. That's where we get our hope. They got their hope from the law and the word. We get our hope through Christ. Verse 50 says, This is my comfort and my affliction, that your word has revived me. I love that word revival. I wish... I wish and pray that our country would go through a revival. There is so, I mean, and not just our country. I wish the world would go through a revival. I wish God would just strike it into our hearts that that's what we need. And not just our hearts, but everyone's hearts. Those people who don't think they need God anymore. Oh, we're beyond that now. We're, you know, God, we, we don't need God. We live beyond that now. We have the internet. We don't need God. Really? Really? They said, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. We get criticism all the time. Oh, you're one of those Christians. You're foolish. You're foolish. 
What do you believe that for? Nobody believes that anymore. Well, I think we've got a few people that would argue with them. I really do. And I'm thankful for that. I think, unfortunately, the other side is getting larger. The scale, I'm, a, I'm afraid, one day is going to tip in their favor. And who's foolish? They're the foolish one. Because they're not going to find out until they're standing before the judgment seat of God. And when they find that out on that day, it's too late. They will be judged. We're not there, fortunately. Fortunately, our our hearts are inclined to God. We live out this word. And we don't turn aside from the law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and I comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. That's those people out there. I mean, you know them. I used to be one of them. I really was. When I was in the Navy, before I became a Christian in 1992, I was one of those guys. I had a a Christian guy that worked for me. I used to persecute the pants off that guy. He wanted to go to Bible study during lunch. I would give him something to do during lunch. Just so he couldn't go. used to be like that. Fortunately, God grabbed a hold of my ear and drugged me off. And kind of like Gunner's story, I was the least likely guy that you would ever imagine to be standing up in front of you preaching the gospel or anything out of the word. Did I own a Bible? Oh, yeah. It was a book on my bookshelf because it looked really nice on my bookshelf. Leather bound, you know. I never opened it. But it was there. Has the word, and it says, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. This is the house of our pilgrimage. This is the place where we come to plug ourselves in and get recharged. We pilgrimage from our houses every Sunday morning to here. That's our pilgrimage. We fellowship with our fellow Christians, charge up our batteries so we can make it through the rest of the week. We don't run off to Israel, although you could be a little rough to do once a week, a little expensive. And getting through the airport and taking your shoes off every time. Has the word of God ever become so real to you that you found yourself singing spiritual songs? I think of my great-grandmother who would sit in her rocking chair with her Bible in her lap, never open it, but she could quote you every verse that you could think of. She had Ecclesiastes memorized. She would sit there and just quote it to herself. And she would rock and sing hymns, look out the window and watch people. And she prayed for them as as they walked by her window. And she lived in town. There was plenty of people to walk. And she lived right across the street from a bakery. So there were people in and out all day long. And she sat there. And she would knit or crochet and she would pray. And she would pray. The word for her was real. That needs to be that way for us too. Oh Lord, verse chapter 55 or verse 55 says, Oh Lord, I remember your name in the night and I keep your law. This has become mine 
that I observe your precepts. From this we get hope from God's word. Declaring his hope in the word and it renews our life. It's our life support. It's not just a crutch that holds us up. It's literally the air that we breathe and the bread that we eat. We sing that in a, in a hymn. This is the air I breathe. It's, in the song, they're talking literally about this. Your very word spoken to me. Those are the words of that song. This is my daily bread. The writer of this song decries the proud and arrogant who scorned his faith and hated the law. There are those in our world who call us foolish. Oh, won't they be surprised? And the writer sang and meditated on the law. From this, we get the power of God's word for comforting us. For comfort. Does it stir us up too? Sure it does. But we get assurance from it. Comfort. God's word of promise has given the psalm writer hope. And he pleads that God will never forget it. Past experience of the sustaining power of God's promise in his comfort, in his present affliction. We're all afflicted. We're afflicted from the moment we're conceived. From the first breath we take on our day of birth, we're we're afflicted with sin. We carry the sin of Adam and Eve until we accept Christ. We're born with that sin. Babies aren't innocent. They're innocent in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the oh, such an innocent baby. That baby's a sinner. Just like the rest of us. If you raise that baby to be a perfect child, just like my daughter, (laughs) who's going to be 23 in October, perfect child, beautiful little girl, brought her up in church, she would sleep in her rocker seat thingy in the front pew while Cheryl and I were doing music. She was in church more than the pastor sometimes. And yet, she's a sinner. She makes mistakes. It's hard for a father to admit sometimes. But my beautiful little baby is a sinner. The world would have judged her when she was a baby as because she was beautiful. She still is. She still is. And she's smart. And, and, and yet, she does things that sometimes I stand there and just think, Oh my goodness, what did we do? Scoffers ridicule this writer's faith. Scoffers ridicule our faith. We get, oh, you're one of them foolish Christians. You're, what do you believe that stuff for? What do you need God for? This guy doesn't swerve from his faith, from his adherence to God's law. 
divine ordinances are handed down from ancient times that are true and sure in spite of the ridicule of scoffers. Just because you don't believe in it doesn't mean that it isn't true and it isn't right. I love Facebook. You guys know that are my friends. I'm an avid Facebooker. And I can't tell you some of the arguments that I've, because I'm one of those guys that like to, you know, pull a print from a grenade, throw it in a room and close the door. Well, I do that sometimes with the gospel. Because I love to read the discourse. And I love to see what people say. You know, it's, it's interesting sometimes to, to watch people's conversations. Because there are lots of scoffers out there. There really are. Lots of them. The writer here becomes angry with those who forsake God's law. That's understandable for an Old Testament person. I think a New Testament person would become sad because the scoffers of the law. Not really angry. Maybe upset, but really sad. Because we know of the promise of Christ. They didn't know. They had never heard Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. They had prophecies of the Messiah coming. But not what he was going to say. That's why we're sad. We know that those scoffers, we know what's going to happen to them. We've read the end of the book. I've seen the last chapter. It's not going to be good for them. He becomes extremely angry over those who forsake God's law. Because he knew... What would happen to those people who didn't follow the law? Their relationship with God was broken. They weren't going to the temple to make the sacrifices that were necessary for them. They weren't following the gospel, or following the law, not the gospel. They weren't following the rules of the law, the 613 or whatever it is. Can we do that? No. Those are hard. Could you follow all 613? Most of, us, most of us can't follow the ten or the two. That would be the Ten Commandments and Jesus' two commandments, by the way. Here, for this guy, God's commands and the statutes form the themes for songs for him. He keeps them in his mind to refresh his spirit in this life of trial that he's going through, this affliction. The constant recollection of the Lord and all that he has revealed himself to be is the most powerful motive to observe his laws. Why do this? Because God is the God of mercy and grace. And if we, these Old Testament thoughts, if we follow this law and we go to the temple and we make our sacrifices according to the law, Our relationship with God is good. 
If we don't, it's not. It's what they had. It was their system. Whatever advantages others may have had, which the psalmist did not enjoy, the supreme privilege was his. And that's in keeping God's law. Of all the things that you have in your life, the one thing that nobody can take away from you is your word. The one thing that nobody can take away from you is your word, your integrity. It's the one thing that only you can damage. When you give your word, do you keep your word? I work with kids. I try to impress that on them. I try to take middle schoolers and teach them that thing, that integrity thing, because that's hard for them. It really is. They struggle with it. Verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. This literally, according to Spurgeon, I'm going to quote him, it says, My portion, O Lord, the poet is lost in wonder while he sees that the great and glorious God is all his own. Well, might he be so, there, for there is no possession like God himself. We claim God. When we claim that title, Christian, Little Christ. That's what Christian means. When we claim the title, Little Christ, we get to hold on to God places inside us the Holy Spirit. That's claimed. That's mine. You're not taking it from me. That's what this psalmist is doing. This psalmist is saying, I've got God's word and I'm keeping it. Which gives me God. If I got his word, I got him. I'm not giving him up. And there's nothing that you can do and nothing that you can say to take him away. I don't care how many scoffers out there. I don't care how many people out there that's going to call me a fool. I don't care what you say or what you do. I've got it and I'm not giving it up. Verse 58, I have sought your favor with my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Have you ever? I, I, I woke up at 4 o'clock, actually 4.03. The alarm didn't go off. I woke up at 4.03. I don't know why. Maybe to use this as an example of today. God just tapped me on the shoulder and said, time to get up. Didn't go back to sleep. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and thanked God for his word? I know I do this in the middle of the night. I wake up sometimes, like I did tonight or this morning, and I lay in bed and pray quietly. My wife literally sleeps very so lightly that she could hear a cat walking across the street. She's a light sleeper. 
But I pray inside my head. Sometimes I pray, Lord, please help me get back to sleep. But I pray, and I pray, and I pray. I'm thanking God. Please, God, thank you so much. I pray I could go back to sleep. But if that's not what your will is, I pray that your will be done in my life. If you don't do that, the next time you wake up in the middle of the night, do that. Wake up, thank him. I went through a time in my life when I suffered from insomnia for about four months. Wow. It's before I became a Christian. That was miserable. It was miserable. I slept about 30 minutes at a time, and I would catnap different points during the day. But I wouldn't sleep at all at night. It was hard. Verse 63 says, I am a companion of all those who fear you and for those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Here we're talking about obedience to God's word. Because God was the psalmist's portion, the thing that he needed, the air that he breathed, the bread, he called on God for mercy. Mercy is forgiveness for something that you did, that you, you know, you deserve punishment, but, but the punishment is withheld. You did something. We all have. We all have done that thing. We're, we're all sinners. We all deserve God's punishment. And yet, God gives us mercy instead. And not just mercy. Mercy and grace. Grace is a gift from God that we don't deserve. So we're not getting the punishment that we do deserve, and we're getting a gift of God, salvation through Jesus, that we don't deserve. We should be at the temple making a sacrifice. We don't have to. It's pretty cool. This psalm writer lived in accordance with the word and continued his devotion even though he was surrounded by enemies. His companions were believers. I want to talk about um, being surrounded by enemies. They're not necessarily always people. When my daughter, Teresa, was in second grade, she had a classmate. His name was Chet. Chet Asman. And Chet, while he was in second grade, about halfway through the year, got cancer. Brain cancer. And he went through chemotherapy and radiation treatment and his hair fell out, so we all shaved our heads. And, and they were able to arrest the growth of the cancer. It was no longer growing. In fact, it shrunk and, and was almost gone, but not quite. And he went along for the next couple of years just fine. For the next four years, actually. Until he got into sixth grade. He's about 12 and the cancer came back. Brain stem cancer. And he went from, I have cancer again, to I have terminal cancer in a, just literally a couple of weeks. And it was, we were sad. Because here's this little vital boy. I mean, he was amazing. He was very bright. 
came from a super strong faith-based family. Great Christian family. And he was re-afflicted with cancer. Now, I have to tell you, what an example of Christian testimony. He went back and forth to the hospital, went to, went to uh, St. Jude's for you know, experimental treatments and all kinds of stuff because his parents literally did not spare one nickel to try to get rid of that cancer. He was an amazing kid. Never once, through the, from, from the time we learned that he had cancer again until he passed, never once did his faith waver. A 12-year-old boy never said, why is this happening to me, God? I think his mother and father might have questioned that a little bit. Why our son? But he never did. In fact, every chance when he was well enough to come to school, he would come to school. He'd wear his little hat on his head because he didn't have no hair. And sometimes he came in a wheelchair because he couldn't, the, the medication that they were giving him was so strong that he couldn't walk. But he would come to school and we would be so inspired. So inspired. And the, in the last week of his life, he was home on hospice. And the night before he died, scientifically, you can't explain this. Spiritually, you can explain it. But you can't take a picture. But the night before he died, he got a visit. And how we know that is because he woke up the next morning And he said, Mom, the man came to visit me last night. And there hadn't been anybody in their house. His mom said, no, you must have been seeing things. No, Mom. Everything's okay. The man came to visit me last night. Well, how do you know? Maybe you were just seeing something. Maybe it was medication or, you know, maybe you're hallucinating. No, Mom, no. He was firmly convinced fervently convinced. And later that day, he died. Later that day, he died. I don't know if it was an angel or if it was Jesus. Quite frankly, it doesn't matter. But he was given the insurance that everything was okay. And he was able to tell his mom that everything was going to be okay. We went to his funeral few days later. And was there tears? Absolutely. But it was a celebration. A celebration of his faith. He was an amazing kid who never once doubted that faith in Jesus was going to give him eternal life. Never once. Not one time. This psalmist lived in accordance with the word and continued his devotion when he was surrounded by enemies. Here was this little 12-year-old boy 
surrounded by enemies. Those enemies weren't people. Those enemies were cancer cells. That's a tough life. It says, the psalmist had companions that were believers, and so did Chet. In this we see, in, in 57 through 64, we see the power of the word for satisfaction. God cannot be separated from his word. The proof that God is the psalmist's portion is that he obeys his word. Portion is the thing that you need. His word is the thing that he needs. Because of this special relationship, he asks God to be gracious with him and to him. From time to time, it led him quickly to order, to order and reorder the course of his life in accordance to God's laws. That's what we need to do. We need to have our heart inclined to God and reorder our priorities to God and with God's will in our life. How do you figure out what that is? You need to read this. You need to pray. You need to talk with other Christians. It says the wicked like hunters laid snares for him. I love this line. I love laying snares. Traps. When I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, I grew up in northwestern New Jersey. They spent a lot of time on the news lately because... There's been a resurgence. When I lived back there, there weren't any bears. Now there are bears. In fact, I I know we would have had some because my backyard was about as wide as this stage is. And then it went up into a mountain like that. And it was just this, you know, maple trees and oak trees. and, and And it was a mountain. We were in rural New Jersey. It literally was all those farmland and hilly, you know, hilly forests and things like that. Old growth forests. And I had a trap line. I used to trap muskrats. Now, PETA would have an issue with that today. You know, using spring traps to catch animals. Oh, my gosh. I would be in so much trouble. But I had a trap line. You could have, you know, with a permit, you had to go get a permit, like, like a hunting license. You could have so many traps, and you had to take care of them. You had to put your name on them and all that kind of stuff. And when I first put them out there, I wasn't very good at it. Didn't catch anything. My last old friend of mine who used to catch stuff all the time, guy guy got me into it to start with. I said, well, what am I doing wrong? He says, you're not making the traps look good enough. What? (laughs) He says, you need to hide them. And you need to make them look not like a trap. Okay, how do I do that? And he showed me. It says you need to cover them up with leaves, and and the only piece that they can see is the where the where the spring you know there's like a little paddle where you put the bait on. He says you need to make it so they can't see any part of the trap, but the only thing they can see is the bait, and it looks so good that they can't resist it. And snaring us, think about the world today. Things look good, and they're going to send us straight to hell. Things look good. Oh, if you wear these clothes, or if you buy these shoes, 
Just do it, you know? Um, or if you drink this beer, or you drive this car, or you live this lifestyle, or you live that lifestyle, or you listen to that music, or this music, or whatever it is, it all looks great. It looks great. But it ain't. It's not. It's a snare. It's a snare. We live with the big one in our living rooms. It usually holds the prominent position in our living room. Big one. I got a 53 inch in my living room. It's huge. It's a snare. That little red hot rod that I drive, that's a snare too. When I get in it, I don't like obeying the speed laws. I like to drive it fast. It's a snare. It leads us astray. The TV leads us astray. The internet. God cannot be separated from his word. It says, in the night seasons, he will awake from sleep to thank God for his righteous ordinances. All those who fear the Lord share the psalmist's love for God's word. God's universal loving kindness makes him long to know more of his will. Longs for it. Wants it so bad. Hungers for it. Got that growly tummy. Mmm. It's like you can smell it, the essence of it. You, you, it makes your mouth water. You long for it. We get to verse 65. It says, You have dwelt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Discernment, I love that. Trying to figure it out. That's what we got to do. We got to try to figure out what it's trying to tell us and how it fits in our life. And we need to make it ours. We need to make it ours. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. That was me. That was me. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat. But I delight in your law. I know a little bit about fat. I do. I got a, like a few extra pounds. Right before Christmas, last year, I weighed 320 pounds. And I wore 52-inch pants. I was bigger around than I was tall. But I've been working on that. This morning I got on the scale, 263. That's 57 pounds. And yesterday, actually Wednesday I did it the first time. Yesterday I wore a pair of pants that had a 46 waist. Yeah, no, I don't want for that. I got a miles to go before I get clapped for. Because my goal is 70 pounds away. But what has that done for me? The fat in our lives are the things of this world. They don't make us healthy. They slow us down. 
They make us lethargic. You know, kind of that sleepy, drowsy. And they make us unhealthy. This has not been easy getting rid of the fat, let me tell you, folks. This is on a 1,500-calorie-a-day diet. i got like five people monitoring my health, making sure that I don't hurt myself. Because you can't just cut out all the fat in your life or all the carbohydrates in your life or all the calories in your life because your body needs some of those things. Actually, it needs all of those things. Your body needs a little bit of fat. Your body needs a little bit of cholesterol. Your body needs a little bit of carbohydrates. That's the, the fuel for your engine. I've got a nutritionist, a wellness, a GP, and um, a surgeon looking after me. Plus my wife and my daughter and all my kids at school and, and, and half of you guys. And all the people that I know on Facebook. Which is about 280 right now. My friend can. And it's been hard work. It didn't just fall off all at once. It's easy to get fat. Because everything we do has fat in it. The best flavored, best tasting ice cream. The reason it tastes so good is because it has the highest fat content. And everything, you take the best cut of beef that there is, filet mignon. And when they cook it, what do they do? They wrap it in bacon. (laughs) What's bacon do? When you cook it, it releases the fat so that it keeps the meat moist. Oh. (laughs) I look at filet mignon now and just gain weight. I mean, I yeah, you know, I got these pants on today. Forgot to wear a belt this morning. I'm like tugging, tugging, tugging. It feels good to get rid of that fat from my life. When I became a Christian, I, I started getting rid of the fat in my life. Not the food. I started getting rid of some of those fatty world things. Some of those world things that were weighing me down. Critics of the Bible need to go on a diet because they're going to die of heart trouble if they don't. The heart trouble because they don't have God in their heart. We need to stay close to the word of God because it helps our heart condition or it helps to condition our heart. It inclines it towards God. Verse 71 says, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. I can tell you that I feel better. Now, I'm not where I want to be yet, but I can tell you that being a middle schooler less in weight, because 57 pounds is about what a middle schooler weighs, being being a kid less in weight, I have more energy, more strength, more. St- I can go longer. I, I, I walk now. I, you know, you, when you're on a program like this, you lose, 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 and then you sit on a plateau. And when you hit that plateau, I got down and I started on a plateau and I said, ooh, the first week, well, it'll just be short. It'll go away. Then the second week rolled around, I didn't lose another ounce again. I went, oh, I got to do something. So I started walking. 
You've got to change something. I started walking and I started losing again. You stop walking, guess what? You flatten out again. And your body gets used to that. I walk a mile and a half every other day. I know that's going to be good for a while, but then I'm going to have to do something more. Our spiritual life is like that too. We need to do Bible study. We need to be in this Word all the time. But then we're going to get to a point where we'll plateau out. And we start sliding back, doing some of those things that we used to do again. We need to do something more. We need to get back on the path where we're getting stronger as a Christian. Bodybuilder. You know? Not crutches, life support. That's true. This is God's word. This is the air that we breathe. Can you live without air? For about six and a half, maybe seven minutes. But then you die. And when do we learn the word? So often in our world and in our own lives, even today, we learn it when we're having a rough time. Oh, we got we get into that Bible because it's just not going right for me right now. I need God. But when we're good, we don't always go to God when it's good. We don't always go there. Some of us do, but not all of us. We think, well, we're okay. I got it under control. Really? You've got it under control. I don't think I've ever had it under control. When things are going well, we like to cruise. Put the top down. Ride with the wind in your hair. It's when things are going down that we take the time finally to get on our knees, pray, and open the book. And I I wish I could impress upon you, not all of us pray on our knees. Try it sometime. It's not always easy to get down there and sometimes get back up again. But it's a humbling experience to get on your knees and pray. You don't need to do it in front of anybody else. You know, that's not what prayer is all about. In fact, if you go over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, it says, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Because they suppose that they will be heard because there are many words. So don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In NIV it says, when you pray, don't pray like hypocrites. Why use the word hypocrite? We think that's such a negative thing today. Well, back then when they were speaking in Greek, hypocrites were the actors on the plays in the Colosseum. They were the paid professionals that were paid to use their words. They would stand up and give great oratory and do the plays. And Jesus said, don't be like the people who are paid to speak. The professional word deliverers. It's not about that. Prayer is about that conversation that you have with your best friend. With your best friend. It's not an accident that this relationship 
that God shows us through this word is the longest chapter in the Bible. It says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This tells me to trust in God's word. The writer here trusts that the Lord would deal with him according to his word and then ask for further instructions to prevent him from going astray. There's all kinds of traps and snares out there. Learned to play games when I was growing up that I would play, my cousins lived about 10 miles away, and we would play these games. And my mom and my aunt were always pregnant at the same time. So there's four of us, me, my sister, and two brothers, and we have four corresponding cousins. And we always, my, my oldest cousin and I, used to play games against my other brothers and my cousins. And we would go to my uncle or my grandfather's house. My uncle George and my grandfather both had farms. And we would set up mazes in the hay loft of the barn. But we would set them up with booby traps. And we would direct them like mice through the maze. And we would direct them to the place where we wanted them. The world's like that. Those traps and snares are set out there to direct us in the wrong direction. The world's not going to set you towards God. It's going to set you away from God. Take you away. The writer here is asking for further instruction. God, teach me. He declared his trust in the midst of slander and admitted that through affliction, he realized more of the value of God. I can tell you that now that I'm at 263, 264, 263 this morning, 264 yesterday. That's a pound in one day. That's pretty cool. I'm never going back to 320. Not going to happen. Because I feel too good here. And I can't wait to get to 185. Wow. That's going to be an exciting time. I, how long is it going to take me to get there? Probably a year. Because it's not easy. God kept his promise to this writer. He asked God to teach him good judgment, the power to distinguish promptly and surely between right and wrong. Prayer for further instruction is grounded on past loyalty to know the will of God. When he strayed from God's word, the psalmist experienced affliction which brought him back to it. And brought him to repentance from the things that he had done wrong. Since God was fundamentally good, he could appeal to him for further instruction. How many of us, when we were growing up, you'd go to your your uncle, hey, teach me how to do this. And your uncle would teach you on purpose how to do it wrong. Just because he wanted to see you do it wrong. God's not going to do that to you. God's that good teacher that's always going to lead you in right paths. Here he says, the proud had now forged a lie against me, plastered falsehood all over me. 
Perhaps they accused this guy of a hypocrisy. He answers their accusations by his obedience to the word. These tormentors had hearts covered with fat. We need to defat our lives. We need to get the world out of us. It's not easy. These guys were insensitive and incapable of receiving any spiritual impression. The psalmist, however, learns greater obedience through affliction, which he has experienced. We've all experienced that. Forged in the fire. I think about taking one of those nice ribeye steaks, boneless ribeyes, you know, got a little piece of fat on them. What happens when you put them on the grill? What burns first? The fat burns first. When we forge ourselves, our heart, with God's word, we're going to burn off that fat. In the furnace of affliction, he has learned the preciousness of God's law. You want to refine gold? What do you do? You heat it up. In fact, you've got to heat it up a lot. You need to make it about 3,000 degrees before it melts and you can refine it. That's pretty hot stuff. So what? Here we are. So what? How, how does this become part of our lives? Well, these nine letters that I've gone through and the rest that Gunnar's gone through, how do we, how do, we do this? First, we study God's law, God's word. Jesus came to fulfill the law. In other words, we don't have to go to the law for salvation. Did the law disappear? Did he come with an eraser to just erase it? No. We still live by it because it points us to Christ. It shows us how to live and what to do. We don't have to rely on the law for salvation. We've got Christ for that. But that didn't erase it. It just doesn't hold the primary position in our life. God's purpose for giving his word was to point us to himself. We are therefore to seek him through his word, and this seeking is to be done wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Longing for it, yearning for it, hungering for it. We are to look into his word and learn its judgments, its consequences. I always have my kids every year. Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. That means if I started with them and my first year of teaching there, they were in sixth grade. When I've had them in eighth grade, I've had them three years. They've read Revelations three times. Why? Because it's the last chapter in the book. Because God inspired somebody to put it at the end. Because it tells us the end of the story. Here. And it tells us the consequences of our lives. That's what makes me sad for people who don't believe. Second, we need to obey it. We need to obey God's word, his commands. The duty of obedience is set forth in these verses in several ways. Walking in the law of the Lord and his ways. Keeping his testimony. Taking heed to our ways to make sure that they correspond to the teachings of God's word. Living our lives according to the word. That's why we need it. 
We still need to have the Word. Because it tells us how to live our lives. Third, we need to hide it in our hearts. We need to make it part of who we are. So that when those things come along, we think of the Word first, and then we step back and look at how we can do what we did better. So that we don't make a mistake again. Do you need to tell a kid a thousand times not to do something? Yes. Do you need to tell them 10,000 times not to do something? Yes. And are they still going to do it? Yes. How did you learn it? And did your parents tell you 10,000 times? Yes. You just don't remember. Because it was unpleasant. Your parents did the same thing to you. I remember, oh, it was about two years ago. And my daughter was doing something. And she repeated something my wife had told her. 500 times in exactly the same way. And she went, I've become my mother. (laughs) We need to do that with the word. We need to become our father. So that this is part of who we are. Hide it in our hearts. It means we need to store it in our minds and treasure it up in our affections with confidence. That it will fortify us against sin. Fourth, we need to declare it. We need to love it so much that we cannot not share it. Studying the word of God because our hearts will burn within us, like it says in Luke 24, in such a way that we won't be able to keep it to ourselves. You love it so much, you hunger for everybody to love it like you do. You ever go to that restaurant where you just absolutely like, wow. And you want to tell everybody you know about that they should go. You got to go there. It's the best. Yeah. And talk to me about a place in Palm Springs. The best hamburger I've ever had in my life. We need to be anxious to share the message of salvation with those who do not know Christ and discuss his teachings with our fellow Christians. We're the plan. I mean, I used to do an example in chapel at school. I would come in dressed in a referee's jersey and I would get one of the kids out of the congregation and I would bring him up and I'd put my arm around his shoulder like this and then I would grab him like this in a headlock and I would reach down below the podium and pull out a baseball bat and I went, you believe in Jesus, don't you? You can't do that. You can't do that. Yeah, they're going to tell you yes, but have they changed? No. We're farmers, folks. We're planting seeds. It's not your job to reap the harvest. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Don't take the power and the job away from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will change their hearts. Hey, I'm Mr. Black Thumb, right? I can kill, I mean, I even killed my lawn about five years ago. It's dead. You look at it now. I mean, when it grows in the springtime after the rain and stuff, it's all just weeds. And then after about two months, it just dies and it's all brown and little clumps all over the place. It's dead. I'm not a plant guy. But I can spread the gospel. God gave me a gift for that. It's like farming. You spread the seeds out. What happens to seeds if you mishandle them? 
If you don't treat them well, they die. They won't germinate. Germinate means that they turn from a seed into a plant. If you mishandle those seeds, if you don't treat them properly, if you don't spread them properly, they'll die. They won't turn into a plant. They need to be nurtured. They need to be fertilized. They need to be watered. They need to be taken care of. You need to love the Lord so much and His Word so much that you're willing to spread the seeds. It might be someone else's job to water and nurture. You just need to spread the seeds. I've had a little bit of success in 12 years of being a school teacher, of, of getting kids to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. I get to spread the seeds in, in good, fertile, young minds, and that's kind of fun. And i got to tell you, you feel like you're about this tall when one of those little guys come up to you and say, Mr. Houston, I accepted Jesus the other day because of what you said in chapel. Wow. It's like winning the marathon. And trust me, for a little short fat guy like me, winning the marathon would be amazing. <laughs> Finally, rejoicing over the word. We will consistently rejoice over the word of God and delight in it. We must not miss the connection that the psalmist makes in these verses. This 176 verses is this big on purpose because God inspired the writer to write it that big because this is so important. Hey, we've spent three weeks and we're only through nine letters. There's 22 letters altogether. And little kids used to memorize this poem. Rejoicing and delighting are connected by meditating on the word. Do I need to sit in lotus position and do, no? Keeping it in your thoughts, in the front of your thoughts. As we reflect on what the word of God is and what it does, we will find that rejoicing and delighting in it are inescapable. You'll delight in the word, in the law of the Lord. Delight in it. We like my, my great-grandmother sitting in a rocking chair. Her favorite, her favorite book was Ecclesiastes. And she would sit and just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and sing songs. She loved all those old hymns, those amazing old hymns. And she would sit there and she would, she had a little chihuahua doggy and she would sit in her lap. And she looked out the window and prayed for people. She was content in God's word. She didn't need anything else. Her and my grandmother didn't even have a TV set for the longest time. Until color TV came out. They were the first one in our neighborhood that bought a colored TV. Wow, it was amazing. You need to have the same zeal for the word and for Christ that these folks did. We need to be passionate about it. So passionate that there's nothing else that we can think of that would be better. Because I got to tell you, heaven is going to be amazing. I mean, the street pavers in heaven are gold. 
We hold gold in high esteem here. And in heaven, it's a paver. A paver. Buildings are adorned with jewels. Read Revelations if you haven't done it. It's some pretty amazing stuff. We need to delight in the Word. We need to memorize verses. Am I good at any good at that? No. But I do it anyway. And I have to do it more and longer to finally get them into my brain. Or take them in smaller pieces or do whatever I need to do, but I get them in there. So that when I stub my toe or somebody hurts my feelings, the first thought in my mind isn't revenge. The first thought in my mind is a scripture verse. So that I can be thankful that through that affliction, I was drawn to God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful. Uh, Father, for just all that you do for us, for the creation of the world and everything in it, for your pouring out your word to us. Father, I pray that as we go about our week and, and the future of our lives, that you will just continue to help us to understand you better through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.